Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon, and yes, we've made it. It's U.S. Open week. We at Fox are obviously pumped up about it. Uh, I had a chance to go to Pebble Beach a few weeks ago. The golf course is in immaculate shape, and uh, we were just hoping that the conditions would stay the same over the few weeks we waited to get here, and they have. And let me just tell you, this is going to be one of the most beautiful golf events you've ever watched on television. I'm not just saying that because I'm going to be a part of it. It's the golf course is in great shape. The weather looks like it's going to be pretty solid, and we are fired up. Brad Faxon, who I sit alongside all week long for Fox and the FS1 broadcast, joined me this week to just ch- chat a little bit about the, the event, uh, past U.S. Opens that he played in, Kepka Tiger. He tells an unbelievable Jack Nicholas and Fred Couple story. So stay till the end because you're really, really going to enjoy it. And before we get to Mr. Faxon, I just wanted to let you know about the all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X from Titleist. It's been redesigned for more speed, more precision, and more consistency than ever before. That's really good if you're a golfer. More speed, more precision, more consistency. All three of those things you will appreciate. If you compare the two models, the Pro V1 has a softer feel, a lower flight than the Pro V1X. The Pro V1X, the ball that I play, has a higher flight with more spin and a firmer feel. Both models continue to provide proven drop and stop greenside control, lasting durability, and unsurpassed quality. And this year, for the first time, they are both available in yellow. I've played yellow Pro V1X in my local U.S. Open qualifier, in my sectional U.S. Open qualifier. I was one of the few in the field that were rocking the yellow Pro V1X. I played, I played them with pride. I loved them. They had bacon stamped on the side. Make sure you check out the new Pro V1 and Pro V1X. Prove how good you can be. Tee up the new Pro V1 or Pro V1X on your next round. You will not regret it. Uh, this podcast ran a little long. So I just want to get right to Brad. I appreciate him taking some time. I know he was uh, headed out to the golf course when I bugged him. My flight was actually delayed into Monterey. Uh, I was in an Uber, headed to the airport. I refreshed my American Airlines app, and it just said flight canceled. And I was like, well, that's not ideal. So I texted Fax, and I was like, we were going to do this in person, but can we just jump on the phone and, and knock this thing out? And he was happy to join me and, uh, and, and just chat about you know one of our favorite golf courses on the planet. And I would say one of the most spectacular hosts of the U.S. Open that we get a chance to be a part of. So here we go, Brad Faxon, here on the Clubhouse. And we welcome back into the Clubhouse uh, my cohort for the summer, Brad Faxon. And uh, Brad now has a show on Sirius XM Radio on Mondays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, called Just the Facts. Check that out. A lot of fun. Has great guests. Uh, his guest list is is one of the the kind of the who's who of the golf world. Brad you're at Pebble Beach. My flight's delayed in, so we're doing this. We we're going to do this in person, but now we're doing it uh, on the phone. So I first want to start with Pebble. Just from 10,000 feet, your thoughts as you've walked around the golf course, you've taken a look at the greens, just your thoughts as we head into this championship of what the course looks like, conditions, all of those things. Well, it's it's absolutely amazing. I'm actually, Shane, in my room right now, and, and if I walk in the front, door or walk out the front door i can see the first tee unobstructed view except for a couple like trees and then looking out the back now i've got a beautiful view of stillwater cove the the sixth green perched up there on the the cliff where our our tower will be it's just perfect in the weather it's a short sleeve people are out here walking around in shorts it's unreal 
Well, you know, like we were, I was out there, uh, I guess now three, four weeks ago, and we played. And, you know, I mean, Pebble can be a hit or miss. I mean, it just depends really on what the season gives you. If it's really rainy, you'll see it. Uh, you'll see kind of a, a really hardy rough. You'll see smooth greens. If you get a kind of dry spring into the summer, you can see it's super baked out. They've had a lot of rain this year, which I think the USGA has to be super pumped about because I know you've been out there. Obviously, there was a viral video Patrick Cantlay made. There is some areas on this golf course that you simply cannot hit the ball into, and I would venture to say you've played in U.S. Opens at Pebble Beach before. This is as nasty a rough as you'll see. I mean, can you think of other U.S. Opens that you've seen rough this, I would say, this dense? Well, I think dense is a good word. I think uniform is a good word. It's interesting. Last night, uh, my wife, Dory, and I had dinner in the tap room with Joe Buck, our our host and um, Tommy Fleetwood joined us. And, and I asked Fleetwood, I said, you know, you played the course. And he's only played Pebble Beach once before. He played the AT&T this year. So he doesn't have a lot of experience around the course, never in a U.S. Open here. But he said the, ref, the rough at Bethpage was thicker than it is here. Um, and, you, and you referenced Cantley. And if, if, you, you know, if the listeners haven't seen Cantley's video on, on his, his little demonstration, that's, that was Emmy Award stuff. I, I thought he did a good job. But he said the... The, the rough around the greens is is pretty thick, but it's not incredibly thick. But there are spots, like Canley shows, that if you get unlucky, you can hit a pretty good shot. If it kicks left instead of kicking right, you may find yourself in, in that Dustin Johnson territory or Tiger Woods territory when they both made triple bogeys on two and three respectively, where you're going to have a hard time getting a ball on the green from five five yards off the green. It, it, it could be one of those where you'd hate to see that decide a hole or a championship, but it's, it's tough. It's tough around the greens. There, there's this, the graduated rough that the USGA introduced years ago, where if you, if you just miss the fairway, it's not as bad as if you miss the fairway by 10 yards, but it's always going to be a factor. I want to get into somebody in form, somebody that you've worked with in the past, and I know you've you've become close to, uh, I guess in a, in a work sense, if you will, is Rory McIlroy. I mean, what he did over the weekend in Canada. I mean, we haven't seen anybody do that in a long, long time. I said, uh, I said it's the, it, as good as it would have been, as fun as it would have been to see him shoot 59 yesterday. I'm almost more impressed that he shot 61 with two bogeys. I mean, bogeys, bogeys 16 and 18 still shoots 61. Runs away with that uh, Canadian Open, and, and now the list of countries he's won at continues to grow. I was looking back at some numbers last night. I mean, the last player to win the week before winning a major championship was Rory McIlroy. He did it in 2014 when he won the Bridgestone and then went into the PGA Championship and wins there. I was also looking at Rory's recent play in majors. And if you take out the Masters last year with Patrick Reed when he was in the final group and he flags it on two and misses that eagle putt and really wasn't in it after that, there's not a lot of major championships he's been in real contention on the weekend since really 2014. Do you feel like the play the week before can carry over into a, into a golf course like Pebble Beach and this type of play that we haven't necessarily seen fit Rory's eye? Do you feel like this is something we will see him carry over, or do you feel like it's a completely new week for a guy like Rory? No, I think this is a, a carryover week for him, and let me tell you why, because we go – back exactly a year ago to Shinnecock Hills in the open there where he missed the cut. Um, he, he took the week, of, uh, week off before Shinnecock last year. He stayed up in Long Island with a friend, 
played a bunch of the different courses, uh, and and he got off to a, a poor start. And he he intentionally has changed his schedule this year for this U.S. Open to play his way into form. I, I think he does a really really good job at at being able to come off an event and, and keep a playing mentality. And, and and what's funny about this is he he had a three week stretch: the Memorial, the Canadian Open. And, and then the U.S. Open, and he missed the cut at the Memorial, and on a course that he's had some success on, that he's played well, that you would think would fit his game. And by the way, it looks like any course can fit his game <laughs> when he's on. But what, what was really impressive about the Canadian Open, other than his scores, it, it's a it's a shorter course like Pebble, you know, around seven thousand seventy one hundred yards. It's got smaller greens like Pebble. And it's a course that he wasn't familiar with, with in a tournament that he that he hasn't played much. And now he hasn't played a ton of golf at Pebble Beach, but um, I, I think that this puts him in such a good mindset. He, you know, he, he stamped the field, like you said, w- with approval here by dominating in every facet of his game and his put- strokes gained putting numbers, which I'm you know really a big fan of lately. Uh, they, they were the best they've been since Bay Hill in 2018. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do look at Pebble Beach, and, and we'll talk about this throughout the week. I know you and I have got a couple of pieces we're going to shoot for Titleist that focuses on this. But, I mean, it's not a Bombers golf course. But when we say what I find funny about that is when you look historically at champions of the U.S. Open, I mean, you look at Jack, who obviously beat the golf ball it, it compared to players in his prime. Of course, Tiger, I would say, drove the ball as well as he ever drove in his entire career back in 2000. I was watching the 2000 U.S. Open final round, and I mean, with the equipment he was hitting then, he's hitting at 320 and 330 on some of these holes. And then you mentioned Dustin Johnson, who it looked like was going to cruise to victory back in 2010 until he kind of ran into some trouble at 2-3 and three and then kind of fell apart on a Sunday. Of course, one of the longest hitters out there. Phil's had a lot of success at the AT&T, hitting drivers all over the place, and he's talked about hitting drivers this week. Why is it is are we saying it incorrectly when we say that this isn't a Bombers golf course, considering the success Bombers have had at, at Pebble Beach? No, oh, that's such a great question, and it's gonna we'll, we'll, we'll watch how it plays out. And if if you look at Pebble Beach, it, there is going to be a wide variety of styles of play and players that that can win here and do well. And and I've gone through this over and over in my mind on. If, if you take the best drivers of the golf ball, and, and you you'd certainly would put Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson, like you mentioned, and, and two, 2,000 Tiger Woods in here, they really don't have to hit a lot of drivers. The second hole is, is one of those that everybody will hit driver. It's 515 yards. The course, as we, we said earlier, is, is softer than we've seen it, way softer than it was in 2010, where Dustin Johnson hit a driver. The, the, the ball rolled 75 yards, and he hit wedge <laughs> into the – the par four um, from 515, but guys are going to have long irons in there. And, and honestly, I don't think like a guy like Tiger, who's now more conservative off tee shots, he'll drive it on two. I don't think we'll see him hit another drive until maybe the ninth hole because the, the, even the par five, six, he'll be able to reach the green with two irons or a three wood and an iron. And then after nine and maybe 10, you'll see a drive on 13. You'll see a drive on 14, even though, if it's not reachable, guys may just play the tee shot on 14 for position, and then you may not hit another drive unless you want to be aggressive on 18. So I could see this being a guy winning, like Tiger at at, at Royal uh, Liverpool, where he only hit one driver at Hoylake when he won the British Open. 
it, it could be a very conservative off the tee, or you could have a guy like McElroy was last week at Hamilton Golf Club where he just says, screw it, I'm hitting driver everywhere. <laughs> Which has seemed to be his mentality. And, and that leads me into, I mean, we are nine minutes into this, and we do this every time, facts, and I feel bad for it, but this leads me into Brooks Kepka, And this is a guy that has seemed to throw all of the normal ideals out at every major championship he's won at and said, I'm going to hit driver all over the place. I do not care what everybody else is doing. And you get to Pebble Beach, as you're saying, which is going to force driver out of these guys' hands because there's nowhere to hit it. And I just I, I want to ask, with Kepka, when he starts to game plan for this week, which I'm sure he's already done, is it going to be a Brooks Kepka game plan or is it going to be a game plan that's similar to a lot of these other players where he's going to be hitting a lot of driving irons and he's going to be hitting a lot of fairway woods and putting himself in the right position? Or is it going to be the Kepka that we've seen that's dominated these major championships with his driver off the tee? If you look at where he's had the most success and look at his two U.S. Open wins. Shinnecock was not a Shinnecock that was a traditional U.S. Open site like we've seen it in the past. Fairways were much wider, much wider than they've been. And Aaron Hill is the widest, I think, that any fairways have ever been at a U.S. Open. And Kepka put on a driving exhibition like Tiger did here at Pebble Beach in 2000. But I think it's way more of a thinker's golf course. I think there's a, a lot of ways that a player can get frustrated here. And, and let me just list a few of them, Shane, because I feel like I've got a lot of experience at Pebble Beach. Some of it could, some of it bad, but I've played in three opens here. Uh, it's nothing like, nothing like it is in, in January, February. So these players that are coming in thinking they, they know the course, it's a totally different ball game, And it, it begins with just the absolute look of it. It looks like a U.S. Open course right now. Uh, the dark green that you see around the fairways, it's a beautiful look and color. The bunkering, the, the grasses around the bunkering, the native grasses are, are up. They're brown. It's, it's, it looks like if you're a, a golf course kind of a snob or geek, you're going to love some of the looks you see here at Pebble Beach. But they are the smallest greens these players are going to ever see at a U.S. Open. They're the second smallest greens on tour next to Harbortown in Hilton Head. So your iron game has to be precise, but what has to be even better is when you miss a shot here, if you miss to the short side of any of these greens, you're going to have to put on a, an exhibition with wedge shots that, that'll be um, second and none because it's so tough. All these greens have gotten so much smaller over the years and they all slope away from every side. Um, and, and that's, I don't know if that's Kepka's strength. And, and every time he hears a comment like me, like I just <laughs> said, it seems to motivate him and get him more driven. But I don't know if this is going to be an ideal place for, for Kepka. And even though he's won two in a row, even though, uh, you know, Curtis Strange's name is going to be brought up a lot because he was the last guy to, to do this in 88 and 89 and bring up Willie Anderson's name. I mean, it's going to be fun to watch him and how he goes about doing this. Yeah, I mean, he made comments last week that I, I was not surprised by. I mean, he basically said he was using the Canadian Open as a warm-up. I mean, if you kind of like dive into the quotes he said. And I think you, if you're a PGA Tour uh, director or if you work for the PGA Tour, you probably hate when you see those quotes. But I think we've always wondered why some of these top, top-tier players, the Rory's and the DJ's and the Tigers and the Phil's and Ernie and Duvall and go on and on down the list – why they didn't mention this stuff more, because you knew that the majors meant so much more to these types of players. Kepka's just the first guy that says it. And, uh, and again, it's like, I'm going to play myself into form, and I'm going to get to the U.S. Open knowing 
that I am one of the favorites. And I think whatever's happened the last year with Brooks Kepka, with the way he talks, the way he talks to the media, the way he talks about golf, him saying that before the PJ Championship, you know, there's 35 guys that I have to beat and that's it. It it might come off at times as arrogant, but I if he believes it, that's all that matters. And I mean, you talk about Kepka coming into the U.S. Open. It's a thinker's golf course. I think a lot of the time we can look at him and go, you know, this is a big jock who lifts weights, yada, yada. You've heard all those themes a million times. But obviously, the guy has an unbelievable golfing brain. And what I am so interested in watching this week with Brooks Kepka is he will figure out a way to play this golf course. I r- truly believe that. And, you know, we can talk Tiger. We can talk Phil, who's had so much success here. Rory coming in so red hot. But Kepka has to be believed as a savant when it comes to professional golf because he figures out all these golf courses. And he does it in the biggest stages. You know, six of his – he's had six career wins, four of them being those major championships, uh, those two U.S. Opens back-to-back. So – he, he does have the ability to do that. And I've always thought the players have been the, have the, the great knack to create their own reality in the way they think. And, and what I mean by that is, is Kepka says, and like you mentioned uh, to the detriment of the Canadian fans, that this is a warm-up for the U.S. Open. McElroy went in there saying, hey, this is a national championship. I have another uh, notch on the totem pole if I can capture something here. And he, and he listed his, his Open Championship, his U.S. Open Championship, his Hong Kong Open Championship, his Irish Open Championship as coveted national titles. And, and Jack Nicholas never won the Canadian Open. Rory knows enough about that history. I think a guy like Brooks Kepka doesn't care about history. He cares about himself. He, he took a, a page out of Nicholas's playbook to, to kind of whittle down the field. And, and he, he did it in a nice way. You know, he said, look, I know that there's a bunch of qualifiers here, 78 guys that, that go to try and qualify, that they don't have a chance to beat me. And, and he can then say that I know that 30 of the guys other than that um, don't play enough or don't like the course are going to be complaining about the conditions. They're out. And, that's exactly how Nicholas used to say it, and and they were very good at saying this after they won, you know. And, but it's an intimidating factor, and and Kepka will be a guy that when when players see him plop down his his couple range bags on the on the you know his golf balls on the range, I don't know if people are going to want to snuggle up to him and, and hit balls next to him. You know, it's kind of like Tiger. It's like who's brave enough right. to hit balls when he's pounding that turf with that those arms you're like I think I'll go down the other end (laughs) so I want to talk about your U.S. Opens at Pebble Beach I mean I I, you talked you said it's nothing like the Pro-Am it's a completely different beast I know you qualified for one of them and got in when you would play the U.S. Opens at Pebble going in did you feel like it fit your game or did you feel like it wasn't necessarily the type of golf that you felt like you would have success at well that's a great question so my three Opens were 82 92 and 2000, and I had no business being here in 82. I was a, a raw amateur out of Rhode Island. It was, um, you know, I was 19 or 20 years old when I got here. I had never played Pebble Beach, never played in a U.S. Open, only had played in one PGA Tour event. So I, I, my eyes were, you know, wide open. I, I had <laughs> a, a great time and, and didn't even come close to making the cut. I shot 77 and 74 or something like that. But then in 92... And in 2000, I was, you know, in the middle of my best part of my career. And, again, I, I don't think I had, uh, and it never showed in my 
any of my career U.S. Opens that I had the ability to play a golf course where hitting it in the fairway was really important and being able to stop a green. I was kind of a low ball flight, low spin guy with a great short game. And your, your, your short game on a course like this gets kind of negated when the rough is so high around the greens that it, it becomes harder for everybody to get the ball close. And I, I played in 2000, parred the first four holes, and I got up to the newly designed Jack Nicholas par three fifth on the on the cliffs. It's one of the most gorgeous settings in the world. And I hit a six iron into that flag about five feet right of the green, and and went down and found the ball on a, on a tuft of you know the seaside grasses down there, and I made a decision to try and play this shot. And I came away with a quadruple bogey seven and I was basically done. And I was really playing good golf. And I thought I had a chance to, to do well, but I mean, the, what, what you can, the penalty for a miss here can be so dramatic in just a small time. And we referenced uh, DJ on two in 2010, making a triple bogey and tiger tiger on number three in 2000, which makes it even more amazing that he could win by 15 and make a triple bogey. Want to take just a moment to let you know that golf's third major of the year is coming up, and even though the trophy is reserved for the winner, the big cash prizes don't have to be. With $1 million up for grabs, $1 million bucks, there's no better time to try one-week fantasy golf at DraftKings. It's easy to play. You pick just six golfers under the $50,000 salary cap before the tournament tees off, then you sit back and follow the action. Simple as that. The more red numbers they have on the leaderboard, the closer you'll be to winning some serious green. You can rack up points for pars, for birdies, for finishing position, and more. And DraftKings will also be running a huge, that's all caps, huge fantasy golf millionaire contest where the top prize is $250,000. So download the DraftKings app or go to DraftKings.com before tee off on Thursday. Select your golfers and use the code CLUBHOUSE at sign up to play for $1 million bucks in prizes. That's code CLUBHOUSE and enter, enter the fantasy golf contest for $1 million in prizes only at DraftKings. $10 entry. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details as we get back to Mr. Brad Faxon. Yeah, I mean, I think as you're kind of rewatching some of these old U.S. Opens, I think that's forgotten. I mean, I do believe people remember the Tiger hit it in the ocean in 2000 and made, I think he made six on, on 18 on his second ball. But I feel like people forget he made a triple and still won by 15, which is unreal. And uh, and when you watch the way he played on Sunday, I, I feel like if you haven't seen this yet, you can go USGA now has an app and you can go watch all the final rounds from every U.S. Open. And it's great. You can watch it on your Apple TV. But I watch I watch 2000. And when you watch Tiger the first nine holes and he just makes a whole bunch of pars in a row and he knows that's all he needs. If he could, he could shoot 78 and still win the U.S. Open. But the way he did it, he was a tactician unlike anything we'd ever seen. And I just, the contentness of of the par putts and the par saves, he talked about it in his presser. He said, you know, making a 10-footer for par at a US, a U.S. Open is almost more satisfying than when I make a birdie putt. And it was really beautiful to watch. I mean, making a whole bunch of pars in a row a lot of the times isn't the sexiest thing for golf fans to see. But when a guy has is in that control of his game, it felt a little like the way he was hitting his irons at the Masters on Sunday where – Every shot, they weren't necessarily darts throughout 18 holes on Sunday. They were all in the exact spot they needed to be. And I'll be very interested to see, coming off the way he played at the Memorial in Tiger Woods, is he going to have control of his irons? Because if he does have similar control than what we saw at Augusta National, he's very much going to be in the mix over the weekend. I mean, I, I can only assume you agree with that considering what we've seen this season. 
there's no doubt about it, Shane. And, and McElroy made a great point after he played with with Tiger Woods in the final round of the the Tour Championship at Eastlake, which is one of those courses that's as tough as the fairways they the players play and tougher greens to hit as the players play all year long. And he said, McElroy said afterwards, because there's no player I've ever played with that hits his irons more, more a pin high more often than Tiger Woods. He's the best. He is the best iron player on the PGA tour. And when we, we talked about this, Shane, you and I about how he, he took apart the back nine on Sunday at Augusta national with, with high shots, low shots, draws and fades, every shot going to the correct side of the flag stick where he needed to to make a par or a birdie. And, and think about this. When he played his last round in 2000, he, he, his goal was to go out there and play and make just par in every hole. Now, if he, he said if he, made a bogey for, if he had a bogey-free round, nobody could catch him, obviously. Easier said than done. But he went out 15 greens, and, and it was even to the point where if the pin was on the left, he was on the right side of the fairway. If the pin was on the right, he was on the left <laughs> side. You know, he, 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 it was an amazing how he, he took this tactician sort of approach to Pebble Beach, and he, he hit more greens than any player that day when he had that gigantic of a lead. And, and I thought that the one stat that was incredible was that there were four bogey-free rounds the entire week, and he had two of them. So uh, Tiger Woods... And, and what I, I think this is a, is a great thing to think about. So what he was able to do, you know, we, we've always, you know, talked about these axioms or idioms that you got to play one shot at a time. You got to stay patient. Uh, you can't get ahead of yourself. You got to stay in the present. Tiger did that by making his goal. I'm going to play. I, I got to play one shot at a time. I'm going to make par in every hole. And 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 to make par in every hole, I got to hit the fairway. Right. And to make. A par, I got to hit it on the green, and and he was able to slow down the game. And all the great athletes in whatever sport it was, they they were able to take that picture and slow it down. And and that was the reality for Tiger Woods that I think was so impressive and and really not talked enough about was how he was able to continually to keep hitting one good shot in a row. Yeah, it, it felt. I mean, this is this is obviously topical, but uh, when you watch Rafa Nadal play on clay, and you always feel like the opponent is on the back of their heels, and it always looks like, no matter what position the doll is on the court, that he's A, going to get to the ball, and B, going to keep it alive. And that's all he's trying to do. Let's keep it alive until either my opponent makes a mistake or they hit a, a mediocre shot. And the moment a mediocre shot comes over the net, he's gonna, he is going to jump on it, take advantage, and hit a winner. And he does it against Federer, and he does it against time. I mean, he does it against the best in the world, and I feel like that stretch we saw Tiger play, Pebble, and then into the old course, you're talking about a guy that, you talk about Kepka having confidence. I mean, he went into it truly believing that there wasn't a golf shot he was going to miss for 72 holes. And that is, I'm not sure we've seen anything like that since the current Brooks Kepka we see at these major championships. I do want to ask you something, Fax. We did this on your radio show, and I want you to do it here. I want you to defend the first hole at Pebble Beach. I've had this conversation two times already today, this morning. <laughs> it's 9.30. I've already talked about it because a buddy of mine from home said number one's the weakest hole in the course. And then I had uh, coffee this morning with Commissioner Jay Monahan talking about number one being one of my favorite holes in the course. And I got this quizzical look, and I'm going, look, it's a, it's a benign tee shot. Look, but you still have a fairway that narrows up there where the golfer needs to hit his shot to have a reasonable approach into the screen. It's a 400-yard 
dogleg to the right with a with a sloped fairway, pretty severely sloped fairway left to right. That if you the higher up the hill you hit it to the left, the more it slopes below your feet. And now you kind of have a shot that you want to draw into this from this lie that makes you want to hit a, a fade or a cut shot if you're a righty. So pressing that tee shot off the tee is important to get it down there farther to have a shorter shot. Now, when you look at this second shot from 130 or 40 yards away, sometimes 150 yards away, it's uphill more than you think. The fairways, the green slopes at you way more than you think. And the right side of the screen, it really falls off that right. That right bunker is almost impossible. It's so deep. Uh, the, the, and, and the sand down there is flat. So you don't get the benefit of an uphill lie. It's hard to get it up and down there. And it's a hole that every player on this field is going to walk away if they make a four and they're going to be happy. Um, it's to me, it's, it's a hole that the, the, I think the general public doesn't appreciate it because you don't have any view of the water and every other hole. It looks like if you at least stand on your tiptoes, you can see the water from somewhere, but you can't do it on one. And, and I think that's a, a, a tragedy really, because I think it's a beautiful design. Okay. You told a story. If you're willing to do it again, you told me a story the other day about you playing pebble with Jack Nicholas and Fred couples and couples doing, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe uh, just just maybe something out of the ordinary to have a little bun, bit, bit of fun with Jack. And, uh, and I'm not sure what year it was, but if you don't mind rehashing that story, I can only imagine people would really, really eat it up. It, this is one of my, my favorite stories that ever happened to me in my career. And, and I got paired with Jack Nicholas and Fred Couples and, and a forgotten fourth guy named Charlie Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S, on, on the final round in 1986, which is the year Jack would eventually go on to win the Masters. But I, I was so excited to make this cut because I had played an amazing third round at Cypress Point in, in tremendous wins to, to get into the, the, the weekend, not the weekend, the Sunday round because it was a 54 hole cut. And, and this, this, cut. Was, this was the AT&T Pro-Am, the, the clam bake, whatever you Correct. want to call it at the time. Yeah, It, it might have been the Crosby then or the first year of the AT&T. And, and Jack Nicholas had shot a couple first rounds of 69 and then shot 80 the third round. His son Steve was his amateur partner, and, and he was miserable. So he made the cut on the number. Uh, so we're starting late on the 10th hole. Nobody wants to get on that shuttle to go out and play 10 at that pebble with a trouble, the right and the cold and the, you know, the time it takes the extra time it takes. So Nicholas, um, Freddie and I are playing and Charlie and, and Freddie and I were friends and Freddie was kind of a phenom there. He, he is vaulted uh, to the fame. He, you know, he's one of those guys, every, every guy wanted to hang around with him. Every woman wanted to, you know, do more than that. And <laughs> it, you know, he just had this aura about him. So we're playing and, and Jack, like he always did was competing. Like this was a final round of a major championship. And on the 18th hole, Freddie had hit a nice drive. And, and back then, remember a lot of balls, wooden drivers. He had a, a deep faced M85, uh, tourney McGregor driver, and he takes it off, uh, off the deck and goes to hit this cut shot up onto the 18th hole. Now, Jack hasn't really said a lot to me. You know, we've had some, uh, pleasantries, but as, as Freddie's standing over his ball, Jack comes up to me and, and I apologize if my voice doesn't sound, you know, Jack kind of has this uh, squeaky little voice sometimes, but he goes, I don't, I don't think this is a very smart shot. And, and <laughs> Freddie, Freddie hits this beautiful drive uh, off the deck, cuts it out over the water onto the green and two putts for a birdie. So, you know, I, 
I, I ran up to Fred and said, you know, Jack didn't think you hit a good shot. He goes, why? He goes, I, I said, I don't know. I, he just didn't think that was smart or something. He goes, well, watch this. So <laughs> Freddie continued to, to do stuff that still amazed me that day. He took driver out on the first hole because we started on 10, which is our 10th hole of the day, and hit a driver where no player in the field probably hit a driver. And he hit it up there, you know, past the second tee box, chipped it on the green, made a birdie. Uh, and Jack, you know, he, Jack was kept running up to me like I had something to do with this. And, and he kept whispering, <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't have any discipline. And, and you know, he, he knocks it on the second green and two makes birdie there, hooks it around three. Now on three, Jack can't believe Freddie's taken driver out because, you know, he's a cutter of the golf ball. And Fred hits that unbelievable draw around the corner there and, and wedges that one on the green for another birdie. So now he's birdied four. I mean, he's birdied 18 with a four. He's birdied one, two, and three, and he takes driver out on four, which Jack would never consider. <laughs> this was so out of character, and now he's almost grabbing me. And, and of course, I'm reporting every move Jack makes to, to Fred back then. You know, I'm 25 years old, and um, and and Freddie's like, this is great. So, you know, Freddie, uh, he, he gets to five or six under for the round after birdie and number six. And then on number eight, a hole that, I, you know, the, the fairway ran out at 250 or 60 yards. Every player would be hitting a two-iron or a, or a three-wood downwind. Freddie took out driver there, <laughs> knowing that there was no place this ball could go except for down on the cliff. But he aimed it 50 yards left on purpose down in the hot dog stands um, just to get a rise out of Jack. He made a certain bogey, but Jack couldn't believe that he was doing this. And I couldn't believe I was hearing this from him and watching Jack, uh, Freddie, Freddie do this. It was one of the greatest days of my life. I mean, he was, he shoot, you said he made like five or six birdies in a row and he's just beating driver all over the place just to mess with him. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, is there anybody else that you would have known in professional golf at the time that would have done this? I mean, everybody else would have been going, oh, if Jack doesn't think this is a smart move, there's no way I'm going to hit this club. And Freddie was going, I'm just going to have a little bit of fun with him. Oh, well, he had more and more fun every time – Jack made a comment to me, and I, you know, Freddie would be running over to me. What did he say? What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was classic Fred. Um, and it's, talented, talented Fred. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what you, and that was the point you made to me when you're telling me, you're like, I mean, he's hitting these unbelievable golf shots on with, with the clubs you should never pull in a million years. I mean, driver on three, driver on one, as you mentioned, driver on eight, and you're going, no, 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 don't hit it. And he's like, I don't care. I'm just going to swing it, and we'll see. It's almost daily esque, you know, we're like, let's just try it, and we'll see what number we make. Uh, to, going back to this U.S. Open, as we kind of wind down, we've mentioned you know some of the favorites. Obviously, we talked a little bit about Rory and Kepka and Tiger. Uh, we haven't really touched on Phil, but I mean, there's there's five, six, seven, eight names. I think everybody has in their pool, if you will. Is there names considering you know you already have mentioned that this is going to be a pretty open U.S. Open in the sense of you know it's not a, a distance place. It, it, you don't have to bomb it three fifty to get around this golf course. Is there some names outside of the norm? that you're looking at that you feel like has a really, really good chance this week to make a move and to potentially win this thing? There's no doubt about it. And I would, this is no secret, but I would put Patrick Cantley's name right up at the top too. He, he won a memorial, uh, you know, he, he didn't do it as convincingly as Roy did in, in Hamilton, but he, he did win by two. He did shoot 19 under par. Uh, you know, he was two ahead of second. He was four ahead of third. He was six ahead of fourth. So he, he kind of lapped the field there and he, he's, if, if you look at statistics and strokes gained, approach shots, he, he's the best player on the tour from 150 to 200 yards. He, and that's going to be a, a key 
um, statistic to look forward to at, at Pebble. So I would put Cantley there. Obviously, that's not a stretch. But some of the other names that um, definitely will, will be in contention and have a chance, like I said, I had dinner with Tommy Fleetwood last night. I, I think he's got the kind of game. We saw what he did last year at Chinnacock on the final day with a 63. Uh, and Francesco Molinari, who, who can take a part of golf course as well. And, and I, you, you and I know that there's, there's a lot of Europeans that the, the Americans don't know as well as we do. But Matt Wallace, who's won, I believe, four times in Europe yeah. in the last year, he, he started to play a little bit more over here. We've seen his name on the leaderboards. I, I, I don't think it would be a, a far stretch to see Wallace up there. And here's my, you know, my, my big stretch. I might get laughed at this, but the ageless wonder, uh, Ryder Cup captain Jim Furyk. Nice. I, I think this course could actually be a place, you know, he's got the experience here. He's got the experience in U.S. Opens having won, you know, at Olympia Field. He he played well last week in Canada on a, I think these courses were similar, you know, heavy, rough uh, fairways that mattered, you know, if you hit them or not. And and I think Furyk is, you know, after taking, you know, you basically take two years off from playing golf when you're a Ryder Cup captain, but I, he's he's shown a little form. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him give a little charge. I'm looking at the way he's played at this, uh, in particular, U.S. Open course. Uh, not not great in 2000, but tied for 16th in 2010, uh, obviously when Graham McDowell won. So, you know, I mean, he's, he's, and he's one of those guys that just has always seemed to find his best play at major championships when it is a U.S. Open. He's like the U.S. Open grinder, the guy that just can, can get around a golf course. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great call. I mean, he's uh, – I mean, like you said, you don't have to bomb it. He can hit driver on holes where these guys are going to hit two iron, and he'll be right where they are, and that's uh, that's really all you need. Uh, did you think Rory was going to break 60 yesterday? Well, it's funny. I, I had gotten off the airplane in San Francisco, and my wife and I are driving down. We had uh, PGA Tour radio on, listened to the call. And by the way, I never thought – listening to golf on radio, obviously it's, it's not ideal, but they do a really, really good job of explaining what's going on. You can hear the crowds, hear the sounds. It's really underrated. Uh, it's, I think it's kind of fu- it's, almost more fun sometimes because it changes up the way your brain works. Yeah, you know, you, you used to listen to uh, baseball on transistor radio when I was a kid. And you didn't yourself, want anybody to talk. You just wanted to listen to <laughs> I mean, to myself, no question. But I, I definitely uh, had some fun. Uh, listening on radio, I had people texting me the whole time, which is not a, uh, a ride you want text to coming down uh, whatever <laughs> Highway 17 that is coming down to, <laughs> into the, the forest. But um, it, it was cool to listen to. And, and when McElroy made his, his eagle on 17 and, and got to 10 under par, the 18th hole is the hardest hole in the golf course, really. Uh, it, it's almost unfair for the long hitter because there's nowhere to hit it. Um, but it, it was like, could he shoot 59 and win that? You know, David Duvall did it back to Bob Hope, I don't know how many years ago. It, it's, I mean, it's amazing that he could go out with the lead, um, not having won with the lead in what we, I think we said four years. And he, he just, he, he put on a, a performance. I, I don't think he knew he had inside of him, but he yeah, stayed was, patient. He stayed free. It was, it was, it was crazy. And again, I mean, you, you've harped on this a lot. I mean, he is a guy that, if the putts are going in, it's just he is going to be in contention. It doesn't matter the golf course or the circumstance or anything. I mean, the guy is is the best, I would say, the best driver of the golf ball maybe we've ever seen. And obviously when the irons are on and the wedges are on, that was something I was really impressed with was his wedge control 
every wedge he hit, not only was it close, but you could see it in his face. He knew it was going to be close. I mean, they weren't, and they weren't yanking back. You know, they were kind of those dead hand looking wedges that were just hitting and stomping right around the hole. And for, you know, for us, we can only hope he brings that to Pebble because, you know, if he's in control of those clubs at this golf course, he's going to have a really good chance. Have you gone and saw a booth yet? Because I'm really jealous if you have. I have not been inside it. I walked by it yesterday uh, with Dory. It's it's spectacular. Golly, it's going to be so uh, Right awesome. to the right of the, the fourth fairway. When I told Jay Monahan where we were, he goes, oh, my God, I can't believe I could fit <laughs> it in there. So I, I'm so excited about it, Shane, and I'm, I'm excited for – for us at Fox, for the USGA, because uh, it almost looks like nothing can go wrong here. Uh, the only thing that I, I hope doesn't happen, I mean, we, we certainly don't mind adverse conditions, but I don't want to see a crazy final round like uh, 92 when Kite won and had to kind of endure these 30-mile-an-hour gusts of wind. I, I want the course to be play playable. I, I don't mind if the scores are double ditches. If 10 under wins this U.S. Open, I don't think anybody's going to care. I think they... They just want to see some good competition, good, great golf. Where, where does Pebble rank for you, not just as, as a player back when you were playing in these championships, but as now a broadcaster and a fan of, of golf and love watching golf and love watching golf at an elite level? Where does Pebble rank in terms of, of your favorite U.S. Open golf courses? I, I think it's my favorite and, okay. and for, for a lot of reasons. Number one, as a kid watching uh, and really starting to pay attention to golf in the early 70s when Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer were the, were the two guys you turned the TV on for. That's the first time I saw Pebble Beach. And I'll never forget the the last day Jack played and the great shot he hit at 17. Uh, and then the 18th hole, and learning about the history, then getting to play here as an amateur in 82, uh, hearing Nicholas's comments that it's just, you know, if you had to play one last round of golf, it would be Pebble Beach. And then having played here for, I, I don't think I ever skipped this event in, in my career. I'm, I'm Fortunate enough that my amateur partner, the C, uh, past CEO of uh, CVS Pharmacy, Tom Ryan, Tom Ryan and I um, won the Pro-Am competition. Our names on etched on the wall, the rock behind the first tee, which I, I took a nice picture of yesterday. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm here for eternity, uh, whether people like it or not. And and I, as as a golf fan, I think it's the greatest venue. I think it's the greatest course. And as a golf critic and an architect. Uh, you know, fan, I, I think this course could even be better than it is. I, I think that the, the, the greens have kind of gotten too small. They, they, you know, the encroaching of the, the, the bunkers and the, and the grass getting uh, mown in too much. I, I just think they could, they could make it even better and better. And they've done a nice job kind of redoing some greens on 13, 14. We know 17 was redone. But um, I, I think the Pebble Beach Company knows what they can do to make this even better, which is even more exciting. Facts, have you looked at our schedule? You and I, on Thursday, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to have Red Bull, like, IV'd into our veins. <laughs> We're on the, you and I have, I think we have an hour and a half break on Thursday. We're on all morning and all evening, and, uh, and you and I have both mentioned to our boss, we're down. We are, we, if you want us in that booth, we will be there and doing it as long as you need us to be. I mean, we get excited, we get amped up for, for any event we get to do together, but uh, this one... For whatever reason, I think Shinnecock was very similar. This one feels different. The storylines going into it, some of the guys playing well, some of the history in terms of players that have won here before. Of course, you know, with Tiger Woods now notching already another major championship on his belt here in 2019. I just, I cannot wait for Wednesday for our preview show and then Thursday to get this thing going because, you know, 
off the kind of the to piggyback on last year. I mean, it was so much fun for us to get to be a part of this and to get to team up with Paul and Joe and uh and it's, you know, it's it's one of it's one of the best weeks of the year for golfers and it's definitely you and I's uh, I would say favorite week to get a chance to call this championship. Well, it is, Shannon. And first of all, I, I agree. I, I would definitely I would put a cot in my in the tower so we could sleep there and, and just get <laughs> IV cuz I am so excited. I don't know how much I'll need to sleep this week. But our team at Fox is as good as we can have right now. I mean, you mentioned having and Joe and Paul, uh, and then we tag team with those guys. And then we're on together with those guys. And then I'm, you know, to have Curtis Strange, two-time Open champion, walking with the final group. So we've got, um, you know, a fearless group: Steve Flesh, Brett Quigley, a, a whole digital team that that work together and are proud of it. But, but here's what I've been thinking about, you know, every, this is our fifth open now since we started at Chambers Bay, we've kind of had to try and come up or make up some sort of reason why this was going to be a great U S open. The reasons this year are obvious. I don't think we have to work or fight to, to make a viewer turn the TV on here. And uh, (laughs) we were, you and I were so excited last year at Chinnacock because we're getting Tiger Woods out uh, right out of the oh, box goodness. on the first bowl. And, you know, you talk about some of these titleist performance um, pieces that we do the in-game uh, promos. And, and we, we did a, a chip shot from behind the first screen and said, you know, you, you just can't hit it over number one at, at Shinnecock. You can't, you can't finish. And, and Tiger's first shot from the middle of the fairway on number one, he hits it over the green. Over the back. Oh. And he hit it over, and then he left it over, and he makes triple. And it was like all the wins were out of the sails then and then. You know the debacle on Saturday and Phil's escapades. So th- there's a million reasons why you want to watch this open, and, and it really only has to say Pebble Beach is all you have to say. Right. But then you can go well, Tiger, Tiger Woods, Masters champion, Brooks Kepka, three in a row, Rory McIlroy, um, U.S. Open. You know, can he win another one after winning last week? You, you can put uh, some unheralded guys that haven't won. Phil Mickelson, can he win a? Uh, U.S. Open finally at a course that's his favorite. Uh, it's endless storylines. And, and the, the course chain, I walked on the practice putting green last night, and I go, I cannot see a flaw right here. Uh, I hit a few putts. There were a couple that the, the townspeople came out to putt last night. I mean, it was beautiful. Effects, <laughs> I, I got to tell you. That was like just four name drops in one podcast. I'm actually really impressed. It was now, mind you, it was the commissioner of the PGA Tour. It was Joe Buck. It was Tommy Fleetwood. But I, I, I was expecting a couple more. I'm very impressed. You wanted me to have more. Or you think this is just not enough? No, I was. I'm just telling you. I, I normally set the over under on name drops at like eight and a half, nine. You know, depending maybe fifteen if there's a lot. And, well, listen. and you were. I was very. I was very proud of you there. I can't. I, I got more. I saw Curtis Strange was at the oh, bar goodness. last time we go. walked Here in. Here we go. <laughs> but Buck Buck ate with us. Um, JB Holmes came in and said hello. Um, I, I, I told you uh, Fleetwood was there. Um, Mark Loomis, our producer, was very upset last night. I never see Loomis get upset, but he, he was hoping to have a certain type of a camera uh, positioned behind the gallery stands on eighteen. So that it could, I don't know what they call that, but it kind of, it can float around. You, you probably know the name of the camera better than I do. You would see it in football games and stuff like that. But the Pebble Beach company didn't know we were trying to do this. And they kind of gave them the no for the next couple of days. So that was a disconsolate 
Mark Loomis that I've never seen before. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm going to tell you this. It's probably probably a bummed out Joe Buck too. The Blues just got steamrolled. That game was over. I bet you were really enjoying it. Now and now, what day is it? What day is Game Seven? Game Seven's Wednesday night, so that's good for us. Um, get we're on the air early yeah. Wednesday for the preview show. We'll get this out of the way. And I was probably wearing my uh, Bruins logo, black and gold hat last night, and, and <laughs> Buck had his Blues uh, hat on. And, uh, he, he was upset in, in the Stanley Cup. I mean, it's my favorite sport to watch uh, live. That, that No home team has won in the last three games. So it, it's interesting going back to Boston now for game seven. Can they break that little hex? Yeah, we'll see. Um, just a reminder, as I've said, and, and as Brad just mentioned, we have a preview show Wednesday for a couple hours, and then we hit we hit the ground running Thursday. I mean, I think we're on 9.30 Pacific time, so 12.30 Eastern, and that's Thursday and Friday, and we will be on basically the entire day as, as we roll into the primetime hours on Fox. So set your DVRs, get in front of a TV, uh, we'll roll into Father's Day. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be an awesome U.S. Open, and I've tried to explain to kind of my 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 sister, my wife, some of my friends that maybe aren't big golf fans, and you said it perfectly. I thought is really all you have to say about this U.S. Open is Pebble Beach, and then you can just kind of expand from there on all the storylines. But just getting to see this golf course with the technology we will have at Fox in 2019 and the condition the golf course is in, I mean. You know, you could have aliens land on the planet, turn the TV on, and go, "Wow, that looks really good." So I'm, uh, I'm really pumped to be a part of it, and our set's going to be great. And I cannot wait to get there. I'm, I'm not going to yell at American Airlines on social media. I refuse to do that, but I am bummed that I'm now I'm four and a half hours delayed to get to get there. But I appreciate you jumping on facts, and uh, and yeah, like I said, uh, we will, uh, we'll knock out some stuff tomorrow. Shooting, we'll have a show on Wednesday, and uh, and then the the U.S. Open gets going, and we'll see uh, come Sunday. Is it going to be a, a three-time, three back-to-back-to-back, or is it going to be somebody different and can Tiger get 16? should be a lot of fun. Uh, Shane, listen, I appreciate it. I could go on with you every day and talk about this. And let me just throw one more thing out there because uh, I think it's worth telling your listeners that uh, you became a dad. Uh, you and Cindy gave birth to Henry Bacon last week. A perfect timing to, to have the baby between our U.S. Women's Open and, and the U.S. Open this week. Congrats on that. Uh, fantastic. And Hey, Father's Day on Sunday at the U.S. Open. It's become a pretty cool tradition. Yeah, it's going to feel a little different this year. That's for sure. I will say, facts. I uh, I got a Pebble Beach onesie when I was out there a few weeks ago, and it's uh, zero to three months. I put Henry in it yesterday, and let me tell you, not quite the fit. It's not like a European fit on him. It's a little baggier. It looked like what you guys would wear in '95. It was like the big sleeves and the big baggy pleated pants. So he's going to have to grow a little bit more into the into the onesie I got him. But I did snap a couple of pictures, so uh, so I'll have that, I'll have that for my memory bank. But uh, he's going to, like I said, it's going to be a month or two before he really, really can wear that with pride. Awesome, Shane. Well, I look forward to seeing you get up here quick. Come on. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. A big thanks to Brad for joining me. Just wanted to let you know some times before I let you go. And before I hopefully get out to Pebble Beach, Wednesday, 1230 to 3 p.m. Eastern on FS1 is our preview show. That is where we preview the event, talk to players on the course, look at some of the whole locations for the week. Thursday and Friday, 1230 p.m. to 730 Eastern. We go, that's on FS1. Then from 730 to 1030 p.m. Eastern, we are on Big Fox. Saturday, noon to 10 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Sunday, 2 to 2 I think 2 to 10 again, yep, 2 to 10 p.m. on Fox. All of those times are live coverage of this U.S. Open, so 
prepare yourself. There will be a lot of golf shown, a lot of live golf, and we are fired up about it. Big thanks to Titleist and DraftKings. We will check in with you following this U.S. Open next week. Have a great one.